Well, I mentioned that we're finishing up a series here on this topic of sex, and that might seem weird and taboo for some of you to hear that uh, going on. But listen, the church needs to start speaking, y'all. And if it hasn't already, it needs to speak clearly, with conviction, persuasively, and yes, even beautifully about this topic. You see, I read about a year ago an article from a psychologist therapist who happens to be a Christian as well. On the topic of porn, he notes the following. Just one of those several topics that uh, touches on our sexuality. This is what he writes. Quote, is it okay to tell our secrets, fellow Christians? Can I tell how many women and men have said to me, I started experimenting a bit in middle school, looking at images, masturbating, but no one ever talked about this. Not my parents, not my school, not my youth group, and never ever my pastor. So tonight, we're talking. This pastor is talking. And I am going to speak. Is this just to be avant-garde? No, it's not. I promise you. Instead, the church needs to speak on sex precisely because it's the Bible itself that speaks as well. In other words, the Bible gives us a way of seeing and thinking about all of life. All of life, y'all. From the cradle to the grave. About ethics to the environment. From the fine arts to finance. And about how we use our money to how we use, yes, even our bodies. I love what the writer Steve Garber says when he puts it this way. Look what he puts it, how he puts it. He says, I am sure that unless we are confident that the scriptures tell the truth about sexuality, about being bodies, and about being full of sexual longings and desires, it's hard to believe that they, the scriptures, are true when they speak about the rest of life. But because they do speak to all of life, We as followers of Jesus do well to listen to the Scriptures and to speak as they do. But before I go any further tonight, I know that in a room this size, there is all sorts of pain that arises from this very topic, doesn't it? We're cynical about sex. We think too much about it. We sin sexually. We've been sinned against sexually. Sex is so powerful. And as we're going to see tonight, so full of meaning and power that it seems to go to the deepest parts of who we are as men and women. And the wounds felt there, whether wrought by ourselves or at the hands of another, they heal slow, don't they? So I want to try to speak tonight on a shushed topic, but to do so delicately. And my hope for tonight is this, y'all, that you would marvel at Jesus and what He has done for us. And by looking at Him, we might follow in His footsteps in the way that we use our bodies. For we can only follow Him, guess what? In our bodies. So see, by looking at the One who took on flesh for us, who died in the flesh for us, that we might get a glorious picture of what a more faithful embodied discipleship looks like. To quote Garber one more time, I want to show you tonight, ready? How to be both holy and sexual at the same time. That's what I'm after. Holding those two things together. Let's take a look. First of all, at this idea of the context of sex. What does Paul tell us? What does Paul, the writer of 1 Corinthians, tell us about sex? Well, really simply, look at these first few few verses there. He says this in in chapter 7. Now concerning the matters that you wrote, 
Then he says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's not his view. That's the picture. That's the, that's the heading. See, he's, he's received correspondence from the Corinthian church and he's taking up that matter. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And he spells it out. But he's going to say this. But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, I won't spend a whole lot of time going into this. I just simply want to show you that Paul is saying something that is crazy for a college campus. That the context for sexual expression is to be held between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Like, I know I'm crazy to stand up here and say that on the college campus. But that's exactly what the Scriptures are telling us. And I know that this flies right in the face of what modern minds sort of think about it. But I want you to consider something. When Paul was writing into the world of Corinth, Corinth was not this sort of like, you know, pristine, holy city where everybody just sort of walked around and loved the sexual ethic that he's putting forth. Corinth was like taking Las Vegas, L.A., putting them together in a city, throwing gasoline on it, lighting it on fire, and you might get a small ember of what Corinth was like. I mean, literally what the text talks about, did you catch that thing up in chapter 6 where it says, in verse 13, 6, 15, I mean, shall... Then shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. This is what, people were leaving the pagan Corinthian cults coming into Christianity and they didn't know, they didn't understand that you just can't go around having sex with cult prostitutes. I mean, talk about a church growth strategy as one of my friends likes to say. You think that would have been pretty attractive to the pagan religions. But Christianity gives an alternative ethic by the way that we use our bodies. And do you know what? It helped, it helped, it was used in the early church to turn the world upside down. The early Christians were liberal with their money, but they were conservative with their bodies. And it helped turn the world upside down. So don't you think for one moment that this doesn't have implications for us today. But listen, as much as I'll say this, I'll, I'll take a, I want to, I want to uh, apply this in a couple different ways. The first is this. I want you to see how this sort of confronts the, the current view of the day, this sort of, um, this, this view of our personhood that says you can really only be a person if you're living out your deepest sexual desires. Paul is going to say that's absolute hogwash. That's not the idea of what it means to be a true person. Now, if you like that, that's fine. But listen to this. In our cultural moment, to live as a fully human life, the idea is that I must express my deepest, innermost desires. And to stifle those or to repress those would not be to live a truly human life. Now listen. While I disagree with that premise, the conclusion is supported. If there is no God who made you, who gives no absolutes with respect to sexual ethics, then you are free to do whatever you want. Again, I disagree with the premise, but the conclusion follows. But here's the thing. Are you ready for this? If that's true and that holds, another person shouldn't and couldn't tell you what to do with your body. But the problem is lying there as well. That means that what follows from it, this vision of the world and this vision of our, of our personhood is actually quite troubling because it is the premise philosophically that lies underneath the enslavement of human beings 
of a culture where I, where, an assault culture? I mean, y'all, y'all have been around TCU long enough to hear the campaign, it's on us. Rogue secularism, rogue naturalism, and it's on us philosophically don't match. And you need to understand that. It's only a high value of human personhood that gives you a stool to stand on to say it's on us. And what I'm saying is, is the gospel comes and corrects that. Now, I'm going to go after a more traditional ethic in just a moment, but I hope that you will see that. I hope that you will see that Paul is saying something radical. And I just want you to consider for just a moment that maybe God in his word to us isn't being a fuddy-dud and trying to rip away your fun. But instead, he's trying to give you a vision for human flourishing as it pertains to the way that you use your body. And that maybe if he really did make us and knows us and has created us and he knows how life works best, maybe the vision that he's giving us for our sexuality is not about ripping away your fun, but giving you a life that's fully flourishing as a human being. That's what I would like for you to at least consider tonight. You may disagree with it, but I'm asking you to consider it. There is the picture of the context of marriage. In other words, it's telling us this, that sex is a marital joy. That it's a marital good, but it's a marital one. And it's meant to be layered and, and, and given in the confines of the context and the covenant of marriage. And we've spoken about that last week. Secondly, I want to push you to as well, the goodness of sex. Paul talks about it. He understands it as such. And again, it's embedded in these first five verses of chapter 7. When God created the world, if you will remember, the, the Christian story asserts this, that He made it good and everything that He made was good. That He looked at humankind, both male and female together. Both forms, both genders. And he looked at them and he gave the benediction. It is good. It is very good. And so you know what that means? Is that it included our bodies. And so to put it frankly, the creation of genitalia and their proper use wasn't an accident in the plan of creation. Do you know that? Paul here assumes and expects that sex is happening inside of marriage. He has an incredibly high view of it. Because why? Because God Himself has an incredibly high view of sex. Paul is saying that marriage is so good. This is what this says. That even a husband and a wife don't have the authority to call it off. Did you see that? Look with me in the first few verses there. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. That means sex. And each woman her own husband. The, I mean, what do you, this is radical for first century uh, uh, Greek. This is radical because what he's just said is not just that the woman's body belongs to the man, but the man's body belongs to the woman equally. You don't find that in any ancient texts. And Paul comes on the scene, highlights this, and gives us a vision of Christian sexuality that is soaring, y'all. That it's good. It's intrinsically good. Scripture screams it from the top of its lungs. Listen to what Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 says. Read this with me. Don't read it out loud, but I'll read it. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. You don't see people Instagramming that quote, do you? This is not male chauvinism. 
This is not anti-feminism. This is a vision for sexuality that is wonderful and beautiful. And it's embedded and screened from the hilltops. From the very Bible itself. And most of us are quite uncomfortable with it. You know, the idea of being drunk with your spouse's body. Song of Songs, in fact, was so risque that young Jewish boys weren't allowed to read it until they matured. Did you know that? Because the vision of conjugal love is so high and soaring. It's so risque. Go and read it sometime. It's right there in your Bible. Well, the reasons that we don't think it's good, I've got several of them listed, but I'll just simply put this. We're, we're essentially Platonists. Now, that's a philosophical term that makes a distinction between the body and the soul. And Plato believed that the body was a storehouse of the soul and the point of salvation was to free oneself from that which was physical and created and to live a spiritual existence. And the early Christians wrote hard against that. But over time, the church sort of assumed that, partly in a, in a Victorian era, that was really a big deal. And the idea is now is that many Christians hold the idea that sex is just a necessary evil to sort of get through. It's probably while if you grew up in the church, this might be your first talk on sex if you've ever heard a minister deliver. It's because it's seen as icky or gross or embarrassing or what. But Jesus himself just does not blush at sex. And he's absolutely 100% okay talking about it. And why is that? Why is that? Because Scotty Smith, my mentor, has once said, he says this, that sex points to something so much bigger, so much more beautiful than anything we could ever ask or imagine. That sex is beautiful. It tells us the story of God's love for his people. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But what, he wanted, what Scotty always used to say to me was, never confuse the picture, the metaphor, with the real thing. And let me give you a little silly illustration that I think gets at the heart of this, of how we sort of confuse the metaphor, sex, for the real thing. In my early years in ministry, I worked for a ministry called Young Life. And in our training, we had this thing where a friend of mine, he's, he was a writer in L.A., and uh, he, he worked as well for Young Life staff in Burbank. And there was a sort of like variety hour at one of our trainings, and he wrote this stand-up bit and asked me to help him with it. And we wrote basically this story of like, um, like this, so I can envision your wedding day. All right? You, you have dated your fiance. Y'all are now married. You've been to the reception. Um, now you've left the reception. You've taken that limo back to your hotel room. Like, and it's, and it's time for marriage night sex. All right? So here's what happens. It's about, it's about to be business time. And then what happens? On the hotel door. Okay, so like he gets up, he goes to the door, and he opens the door, and there standing at the door is Jesus. And it's Jesus saying, Ryan, it's time. Let's go. It's time. Oh, what? what? <laughs> wait, wait a second. Like, have you already, you know, gotten the third floor? I don't know. Like, can you go get the state of Nebraska? I mean, can you just give me, please, like five minutes here so that we can have sex before we go off to heaven? And the idea there is, is that that resonates as a little bit of humor because I think most of us actually think that. Because we've substituted the pointer, the metaphor for the real thing. We've confused the picture, the sign, for the thing to which it points. Intimacy and fellowship with Jesus. I mean, it's actually... Jesus Himself says, 
that there will not be marriage in heaven. So what does that tell us about what it is? That it's a pointer to something greater. That it acts as a signpost to something far more greater than even, listen to me, than even intimacy and orgasm could ever approximate. It's exactly what sex is about. It's God in His kindness giving us an experience, a taste, a mere approximation of the joy and the delight and the ecstasy and the wonder that comes from seeing our Maker face to face on that day. That's why it is given to us. And it's a beautiful thing. Let's take a look thirdly. I have to run through this. I know it's getting long, but the point is, is I wanted to keep it a little bit shorter. The purpose, thoroughly the purpose of sex, and I'm skipping over what Lauren Winter says, a beautiful quote, but you can ask me about it later. I want to look lastly at what he talks about, the purpose of sex. You see, Protestants have believed uh, that per- the purpose of sex is really threefold. And that is that it's certainly for procreation, for having children, for populating the earth. That it's also for pleasure. That it's for fun and for enjoyment. Remember, God gave us bodies. He did not have to make sex pleasurable, but He did. And then thirdly, this often misattributed C.S. Lewis quote, you will see it up here, you often hear something like this, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. Bad theology right there. And it's certainly not C.S. Lewis. God made you spiritual and physical. Both are good. You are body and you are soul together. That's what makes death so bad, by the way. It's because you're separated. And one day Jesus will put all that back together. The picture here is is that you're embodied. And then thirdly, thirdly, procreation or having children, pleasure, and then a unitive covenant renewal act. It's a way of saying physically what you have said with the rest of your life. A full giving. Sex is a picture of the vulnerability and safety that comes in marriage alone. Complete vulnerability. Complete giving. Complete safety. It is therefore to say with our bodies that I am yours exclusively and permanently. Tim Keller in his book Meaning on Marriage puts it this way, that sex is a nonverbal way of saying what I do with my body here I am doing in all other aspects of my life. And friends, frankly, that is what the Bible is trying to get at when it says that the context of marriage is to be within, the context of sex is to be within marriage itself. Because you're saying with one part of your life, your body, what you are not saying with the rest of your life. That I'm giving myself over to you. That until death, I'm with you. And you are with me until death. And therefore, if you cannot have somebody say that to you, the Scriptures are going to say you should not have sex with them. You see that? Why? Because the purpose itself of sex is a sign, as I've already mentioned, that it points to a greater reality. It points to something far, far more beautiful. Sex is unique because it communicates something even deeper than the covenantal love between husband and wife. It truly is a sign within a sign. Last week we said that marriage itself pointed to a greater reality, namely the commitment that Christ has to us, His bride, the church. And what marriage is to that commitment, sex points to the joy that comes from intimacy that God has with His people. 
I'll just leave you with this and say this, that I want you to know that in light of the fact that sex can be profoundly powerful, the hurt that many of us carry around in, in us from past sexual experiences, what do we do with those? What can a minister of the gospel give you in this moment to provide hope? When Jesus died on the cross, He really did, friends, pay for all your sins. And I don't care what your sexual story is, no matter how jacked up it is, there is hope for you in Christ. And all throughout the Scriptures, we see words like this, that God is a restorer of the broken places. That He restores the years that the locusts have eaten away. And don't you believe for one moment that Almighty God cannot bring substantial healing in your life if this is your story. He has done it in mine. And He is faithful to do it in yours as well. How do we know that God Himself will do this? How do we know that that this sort of healing is, is on offer to us in the good news of the Gospel? That God really did come to rescue us and to smile on us. How do we know that? Well, here's how we know it. Because don't you know, there would be years prior to what Paul has written that there was a man himself who was left naked. That on the cross, Jesus died naked. No, not with the little loincloth that you see on pictures of Him on the cross. Naked. And it feels so shameful to even listen and talk about it. And our artists do their best to sort of cover the shame of the moment by covering Him. But dear friends, don't you know that on the cross, that there, there as we've already sang, that there our sins are, are atoned for, That Jesus, the man of sorrows, has paid with His precious blood to make you righteous and to give you a beautiful, perfect standing. Jesus' very standing itself before God the Father. And so here's what you must do. How can you have hope? You quit looking at your own nakedness. And you look to Jesus's. That's what you do. And when you see that, that He has done that for you, there is hope. Listen to what Jesus Himself says in Revelation chapter 3. I counsel you to buy from Me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Oh. Every week, my pastor tells me, that my sins are forgiven. That my guilt has been paid for. That my shame has been covered. And that my dignity as a person has been restored. I pass that blessing on to you. Because it is true of you, dear friends, if you're in Jesus. The last word of hope that I'll give you comes from Todd Wilson and his book, Mere Sexuality, where he writes this. And this is where I'll close. The resurrection of Jesus serves as a constant reminder that there is more to come. We are in bondage to sin and await the resurrection of the body. We will always struggle in one way or another, more or less all the time. 
I love this. But the resurrection of Jesus reminds us that this universal human experience will one day come to an end. The resurrection is the resolution to all that troubles us. Is that not good news? Is that not profoundly good news for your heart and your soul and your body? Take it, believe it, and live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words. Put them deep into our hearts, we pray now. And we lift this all up in your name. Amen.